Hello everyone, welcome to Crankcast, this is season 2, episode 5. I'm your host, Tudor, and welcome to the weekly motorcycle podcast, where we talk about the latest news, and then we also like to take a trip down memory lane to see what maybe happened in the past, how maybe a specific bike got to be what it is now, and we have an actual look at racing, and this is going to be the case for this week as well. But without any further ado... Um, if you like this podcast in general and you like bikes, please check our main channel. Let's crank it on YouTube. K-R-A-N-K-I-T. Let's go straight into the topic recap of this week. So today we're going to talk about a new Suzuki Hayabusa. We're going to say bye-bye to Yamaha SR400. The mystery husky that we've talked about last week has finally been found. Now, also FIM Mini GP World Series is now a thing. What do we have? We have Lime launching e-mopeds in Washington, D.C. And I'm going to explain to you in a moment why this is actually motorcycle news. Um, what else? What else? What else do we have? Oh, bagger racing. Because racing three to 400 kilo machines is a good idea. And then finally, over 200 historical bikes got destroyed in a fire. Really unfortunate. And then we're going to top it off with something a bit happier and a bit more fulfilling, more wholesome. We're going to talk about a specific extreme enduro race that happened in 2015. And I, I called the section when extreme enduro went too far. But in order to get to that section, you're going to have to stay through the news. So let's take it one by one, nice and easy, and get to the end of this. So first things first that i want to talk about is suzuki's hayabusa we have a new busa bro okay we don't know that many things about it truth be told uh, but we do know some things that we could find out from a 30 second teaser so i i, I wrote on my notes only have a short trailer Oh, I'm I'm stupid. <laughs> Never mind. So yeah, we only have this short little 30 second teaser to go by. So not a lot that we know from Suzuki, but I'm guessing we're gonna find out in, in a bit. Um, they didn't do a Ford, right? Where they took like the Mustang name and put it on something completely different. No, this is still pure spirit Hayabusa. And this all kind of takes over to the design. So the design is really, really inspired from the old one. Now, we don't have detailed shots of this new bike, unfortunately. But what we do have is this trailer, and you do have a few glimpses of the bike. And you have that same long silhouette, right? So it's still gonna be a super sport touring bike, I guess, if that's a thing. Um, and you can also you can also clearly see that real rear tail section. So if you know from the old Busa, basically the place where the passenger seat is, usually, it had a bit of a bump on top of it, similar to what the old Asrad or, or even like the old Hayabusa. Now, this Hayabusa is definitely retaining that little tail bump. Um, so a lot of the lines are really similar to the concept of the first ones. Now, my issue with this is that the Hayabusa was never really thought of a pretty bike. It was a really functional bike. It had great performance, uh, even great comfort for what it was. But it was never really a beautiful bike. And I'm afraid that Suzuki didn't really change much. Um, with this fresh redesign. 
but we're gonna have to see some detailed more detailed shots i'm honestly not gonna have my hopes up if you like the previous hayabusa you're gonna love this one probably uh if you're in my camp and with most normal people's camp where we kind of went like Ugh, that's ugly um yeah you might not enjoy it that much what we do know is um suzuki's keeping it a bit classic a bit old school you know um with the speedo so the dash is not a tft dash no, it's actually quite the opposite. So you have two analog dials. You have a rev counter and then a speedometer. Uh, and then you have a small TST dash in the middle. It's going to show you some information. Um, that's about it. So no, they they didn't take sort of the sort of touring technology to get on something like a BMW or even a Honda. They didn't. Um, so they stayed with analog. Now, truth be told, this new gauge cluster looks really inspired from the old one. You have the same sort of multiple circles and stuff like that. Um, I don't think it looks particularly bad, but for a sports touring bike, because let's not fool ourselves, the Hayabusa is a sports touring bike. It's not a super sports bike. It can't really corner that well. It's, it's a pig. But it's a pig that runs quite fast in a straight line, and this is what the new Busa is going to be as well. So yeah, the dash is basically going to be the same. I'm a bit disappointed about it, but uh, yeah, I can get over that. Speedometer tops up out at about 180 miles per hour, and that tells us absolutely nothing. Because most motor super bikes, super sport, super sport bikes, um, speedos top out at about 300 kilometers per hour, and then they just show blank. Um, you're still accelerating at that point, but they show blank, so... Yeah, this tells us absolutely nothing, no matter what other journalists might say. Um, I, ha I had left actually two comments on this topic, and I'm actually really curious if you can answer in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. Is there still a market with actual customers for this bike? Back in the day, this was a really popular segment. Uh, you had the ZX14R, you had the Hayabusa, you had the Honda uh, Blackbird, and a lot of other bikes, right? And all of these bikes that took this top speed crown were basically sport tourers. I mean, you could call them super sport tourers, but still. My question is, do people still care about these bikes? Because when was the last updated bike like this released? I genuinely do not know. So we have something like... The idea of, of sports tours evolved, and now when you think about sports tour, you think about a BMW S1000XR, about a KTM 1290 Super Duke GT. Those are amazing bikes, they're amazingly fun bikes. They're way lighter, they handle way better, and they still have the power. I mean, the Super Duke GT has about 173 horsepower, I think. Um, even the S1000XR has a shitload of power. So I think the segment evolved a bit, and I'm really curious if if there's still a segment for this. Honestly, I think, I think personally, this might go down the route as the new Toyota Supra did in the automotive world. Everyone remembered the Mark IV Supra, the same as everyone will always remember the original Busa. But then this new updated one, it's just not different enough. It's just the market for it kind of went away, in my opinion. I, I hope I'm wrong. I mean, I don't inherently want any bike to fail. So in that way, yes, I do hope I'm wrong. But yeah, we're going to have to see. We're going to have to see about the new Busa. Then my second question related to this topic is actually, is this bike enough of a change from the old one? 
the dash is the same styling is the same again inline four i mean we have rumors of like almost 200 horsepower but then again the old bike had plenty of horsepower as well is it enough of a change from the old one i don't know <laughs> but and we're not gonna know until it finally comes out at least the specs but yeah, this was the, the new Suzuki Hayabusa. Now, despite me not seeming that interested in it, uh, I'm actually really curious what are they going to do with this. Um, so I can't wait to see the official unveiling of this bike. Now we're going to go to the second topic and we're staying in Japan for this one. And we are saying bye-bye to the Yamaha SR400. You probably have no idea what this bike is and you probably never owned it and you probably don't know many people that own it but that's fine because a lot of people actually did so what this bike was like quite some time ago you could say like a few tens of years ago and this bike was a spin-off from the xt500 now the engine is basically really similar with the xt500 but the sr was taken down a notch because they had to adhere to Japan's licensing system, which one of their licenses is basically up to 400 cc's. So they wanted to make this SR400 fit in this category, and um, well, so they did. So it's derived from the XT500, which is a really old bike, and this kind of defines this entire motorcycle. Everything, it's amazing that they still sell it these days the way they do. But think about it this way, this bike never, and I mean never, came with an electric starter. That's amazing in a way, but mad in this exact opposite way. This bike is a single cylinder, uh, and it's not that big of a deal, until you realize that they only added fuel injection in, I think, 2014 in the US. That was the last... But so up the, you can, in 2013, you could buy a carbureted new bike from Yamaha. That's amazing. But other than the um, electronic fuel injection, this bike hasn't really changed much from 1990, I think. Now, there were some small bits here and there, but mostly it stayed the same with its, <laughs> with its Kickstarter. I mean, imagine having a Kickstarter bike in 2015. That's, that, that's honestly amazing. I, I don't even know what to say about this. But um, what Yamaha did really cool to this is that, okay, so they didn't announce that they're gonna kill it off. Okay, fair. Uh, it's definitely had its its glory time. But what Yamaha said is that they announced that they would kill it off from 2022. And so they allowed you one more year to purchase it if you're somehow nostalgic over this bike. And I think that's amazing. Like, Don't get me wrong. This SR400 looks really cool. I, I dig the aspect of it. <clears throat> Sorry for that. But... Um, <clears throat> The fact that Yamaha still gives us one year of, okay, here, buy it now if you want, it's your only chance, it's pretty cool. And what they're doing is actually kind of cooler. They're doing a final edition version of this bike. So it's going to be limited to 1,000 units of this bike. You're going to be able to purchase it in 2021. Now, I don't think these are ever going to like shoot up in value or something. There have been so many SR400s produced that they're not really something particularly new the limited editions though they do look cool i'll give you that i mean the the, the design of this bike screams convert me to a cafe racer um but a reliable one um so, yeah i'm i'm uh, good job yamaha i applaud you for giving us one more year to buy this bike i'm not gonna buy it but if you wanted to you know so you remember last week where we talked about a mystery bike a mystery husqvarna 
<clears throat> we finally know what it is. Um, so it's it's actually a Svartpilin. Uh, they released another short teaser, and it's actually a Svartpilin. Uh, it's most likely going to be the 125. It looks like a pretty small bike, and there were a lot of rumors of them releasing a 125. So that's it. Um, now, what we completely forgot about last week is that the Svartpilin is actually a, a bit of a wannabe scrambler. Um, they come with semi-nobby tires from the factory. So when they when we're talking about adventure and go where no one else has ever gone to, we're kind of not that far by talking about um, a scrambler. So yeah, we have a new Spartan 125. It's probably going to be really similar to a Duke 125, at least in the engine compartment. I'm not sure what they do with the geometry, but the design is pretty cool. I mean, if it looks like anything like the 401 and 701 Spartan, I can't wait to see it. And I would actually love to ride it, even though probably be the least powerful bike I've ever ridden in my life. But speaking of not powerful bikes, um, the FIM announced a new Mini GP World Series. Now, So here's a bit of a backstory. Getting into racing is hard. And I'm not talking just about the money, but if you're not from Europe, it's almost impossible to get into MotoGP. The reason is all the important racing happens here and you have to be here and you have to take part in some specific races and you know to get noticed by some specific people and to be able to get to the top. FIM plans to sort of try and change that and this is pretty cool. Um, so th- this new World Series is going to happen on um, standard Oval GP0 160 bikes with the same um, tire choices for every single team and competitor what this is going to do is basically they take small championships that apply for this sort of world series uh badge and then all of them will race under the same sort of umbrella of the mini gp world series the age required is between uh, uh, 10 to 14 years of age what what this plans to do is basically standardize some competitions around the world one reason why other championships are not that relevant because it's really hard to to know hey, this rider is good, but in what conditions, right? Against what riders? When is he good? But when you have some standards like the bikes and the tires and stuff like that, then you can you can you can limp out in other countries, continents, stuff like that. So this is not going to be Europe exclusive. Uh, this also includes America, Australia, if they want to, uh, even Antarctica, if, if anyone's up for doing that. The coolest part about this, though, is that at the end of the season, the best rider from all of these series will compete against each other. So at the end of each season, you're going to be flown out to one common location, and you're going to find sort of like the king of the world, the king of the miniseries. This is really cool, and I'm super excited for this. Um, If I was a kid that was really passionate in racing and my parents could afford it, and I'm not from Europe, and even if I am from Europe, this would be really, really cool to take part in gotta say next up we're gonna talk about lime uh the scooter company launches e-mopeds in washington dc and paris now this is not particularly motorcycle news so we're gonna go fairly quickly through it but i think it's still worth mentioning so they're using the same neo scooters as revel which is uh, uh, basically their main competitors in this e-moped segment um, one advantage Lime has is that people are really familiar with Lime already from their scooters. A lot of people use their app, and so if through their app now can get um, e-mopeds, hey, why not? I would dig it. 
What I like about them is that they went out of their way to provide some safety for their the customers. So basically one of the things you can get is a free 45 minute class with an MSF certified instructor if you are in the USA. That's pretty amazing. Um, more education between getting on an e-moped, which can reach some fairly decent speeds, is always great. And yeah, I'm, I'm all for it. Um, and then, yeah, I, I think this is the right approach. I'm really curious how scalable it is going to be. So this service currently will launch in, in uh, Paris and then in Washington, D.C. But the thing is, how sc- if this like truly picks up and like, if it becomes a new cool thing, how will you find that many MSF instructors um, to offer these free lessons? I don't know, but I guess this is a problem for later for Lime. Um, but getting into proper motorcycles again, I a proper motorcycle that can only be a Harley. So it's time to talk about bagger racing. Um, it's a bit of a series that became a bit of a, of a viral hit in some ways uh, when they did uh, some demo races in 2020. So now officially the bagger racing league in the USA is a thing. So it's going to be a full championship for 2021. We have four classes. First of all is the hooligan class, which to me is like, what the fuck? Because so the hooligan class includes bike like the Harley Sportster, um, the Indian FDR, Indian Scout, and the Livewire. This is all in one class. Now, don't get me wrong, but an FDR is miles quicker than a Sportster. Why would anyone choose a Sportster? I get it, they're modded bikes. The FDR, though, is such an advanced platform over the Sportster, even over the Scout. And then the Livewire? I mean, the Sportster is like a 60 horsepower lumpy little thing. The Livewire, okay, it's not the best bike in the world, but it accelerates like mad because it's electric. This class confuses me. I, I, I get it, right? I get it, it's this style of bikes, but these bikes, like from a racing perspective, they're so far apart that... How would they even compete? Why would you ever choose a Sportster from these four bikes? Or a Scout, where you can have an FDR or, or a Livewire? Probably think the FDR would be one of the better ones. I, I don't know. I don't know. This is a bit confusing one for me. The next ones, though, are a bit more interesting. So the second class is Big Twins, um, where we have bikes like the Milwaukee 8s and the, the Indian Thunderstrokes. The third class is a really interesting one. It's a funky one. Really proper useless one same as this entire race if you ask me though i'm not saying in a, in a bad way but it's a stunters so this is basically a pretty free-for-all competition what's the catch though in order to qualify for the race you have to participate in a stunt race so you have to know how to do like wheelies stoppies rolling burnouts whatever any stunting you want in order to qualify for the proper race. That to me is amazing. Really stupid, but it, it sounds like so much fun and it sounds like such a spectacle. I love this idea. And then finally it's baggers. Um, so what we what we saw last year with this big Harley or Indian baggers, we're gonna see this year again. So the thing is this entire this entire racing league, I guess you could call it. Sounds really interesting and funky and unorthodox, and that's great. I mean, I think having more fun in racing and less like form being like Formula One, where it's all clinical and bullshit these days, I think it's great. Racing for spectators at least is about fun, and even for some riders, it's about fun. So, some of these are really fun. 
I'm, I'm a bit worried about the classes. I think some of them are way too broad. Um, again, like the hooligan class or even what is considered a bagger. I mean, okay, Harley is by definition a bagger, I guess, but is a Honda Goldwing a bagger as well? I would say yes. But then is something like a Super Duke GT a bagger? It has bags out of the factory. I mean, why couldn't it? That's a proper sports bike. Why can't you just take an R1 or an older Ducati if you need to be a twin and put some bags on it? Is that still a bagger? I don't know. Um, I guess we're going to have to see exactly how they properly differentiate these categories. I think there's there's place for for having like gray rules. But we're going to have to see. Uh, some of the classes like the Stunters one, I'm really excited to see. Uh, I think they're going to be a big spectacle. Now, one mention. Uh, the bikes are heavily tuned, of course, because racing sportsters around the track would be so boring, or racing Indian scouts. Like, they're not... They're cool bikes in general, but they're not f- cool for racing, right? They rub when you lean over two degrees on one side. The 50 horsepower of a sportster is making noise, and that's all. Without the, as, as they're all saying, like the Harley is a perfect tool for making noise without the side effect of power. But yeah, uh, this entire series should be interesting. Um, I'm, I'll be curious to to watch it up closely. Now, finally, for the late, the last news on this show, it's really sad news from the beautiful country of Austria. Because over 200 historical bikes got destroyed in a fire in a museum at the bottom of an Alpine pass. I think it's the Timmeljoch. Probably pronouncing it completely wrong, but... Yeah, um, and... A few days ago, on the 28th, I think, of January, this entire complex burned down. There were a lot of firefighters helped to intervene, and a lot of people helped, but not much was really salvaged. This was Europe's highest motorcycle museum. To be fair, it was deep inside the Alps. It made it quite special. I never got the chance to go to it, but if I was to take my Euro trip uh, this this past year i would have definitely stopped by for there fortunately not now I, I can't do that any longer um i've seen a bit of a video from inside of it from what's left and let me tell you it looks like a scrap heap what used to be beautiful motorcycles beautiful classics one-off bikes is now nothing it's now just a lot of melted and burnt metal and it's sad and this place had a lot of history even even from its creation because the legendary racer Giacomo Agostini for example helped build it in the beginning so it, there were a lot of stories related to this place um a lot of history that unfortunately that was now it's just not not longer no longer and it's not an old museum I think it got finished in like 2016 if I'm not mistaken nobody got hurt so luckily um, no soul was injured during this fire that's great um unfortunately though almost all the bikes are are done um there's crap at this point but yeah this was the news i'm sorry to end on a bit of um of a sadder tone sadder news but it is what it is um welcome to 2021 this is so much better yeah well this was the new segment of crankcast so Coming on, we're gonna take the story time of when Extreme Enduro went too far. So, when did exactly Extreme Enduro go too far, you might ask? 
It all happened back in 2015 in the West, or World Enduro Super Series sponsored by Red Bull. This is a race that will stay in the history books, not only of the sport, but in motorsport in general. Because something happened that would never happen in other sports and in other races. And it's quite amazing the way it happened and why it happened and the backstory behind how we got to this situation. So we have to go a few years back, about five and a half to six years back, back in 2015, and we're going in Germany at the Erzberg Rodeo. This is known as one of the most difficult single-day races. It's up there with difficulty of Romaniacs. Sure, different types of difficult, but this is one of the hardest, if not maybe the hardest, one-day extreme enduro event. And so we can imagine a lot of top riders are there. I mean, heck, all the top extreme enduro riders are there. And the race started as usual. I mean, they had qualifying in the weekend, then they had their start, and people were, were going at it. And we're going at it. And we're still going at it. <laughs> and we're still going at it. Until they reached a section. So this year, in 2015, they added a new section to the track called Downtown. This section was happening through a forest and it was a basically a vertical, muddy, slippery, uphill cliff. And the story goes that the first guys reached there and they couldn't pass. The next guys reached there and they couldn't pass. The fifth guy reached over there and he still couldn't pass. So basically, the conclusion to this was that nobody could get through there alone. And so the top riders, the top five riders that got there, so Alfredo Gomez, Johnny Walker, Graham Jarvis, Andres, let them be clear, and Wade Young, they all had to help each other and to pull each other out of that hole. They were the only ones to actually get through past that hole. And afterwards, most of them were declared joint winners. Most of them except for Wade Young. Um, unfortunately, he was disqualified for missing an earlier checkpoint, but he still finished the race technically. I mean, he was up there. And it was one of the only times in history where a race had four winners. Four people on the podium and five kind of, I mean, theoretically Wade didn't finish, but he got to the finish line. So that's okay in my book. And they all waited for each other and had to pull each other out of there. This is how mad and insane this was. But how did they actually get to this situation? Because you don't just go from one year to another and suddenly no one can finish your race. Well, the story starts about one year earlier at the same Erzbeck Rodeo. That year, Johnny Walker in 2014 finished with a time of 1 hour and 37 minutes. That might not sound like so short, but you have to realize that Erzberg Rodeo has a time bar to get the finish line of 4 hours. And at this contest, I mean, sure, winning is nice, but the main, your main goal should be to finish it in those 4 hours. Now, Johnny Walker finished it way too quickly in 2014, in 1 hour 37. So the, so the organizers, especially Carl, which is the man over there, considered that the track was maybe a bit too easy for this contest since he managed to finish so early. So he made it a bit harder. Um, and he added this section called Downtown. And this is the section that basically killed everyone. It was just way too hard. It was hard. You can look at the footage. 
search for 2015 Erzberg Rodeo, but it was hard to walk on. Like people were incredibly tired. Um, they were just done, completely done. And in 2015, these five riders actually finished and four of them actually won. And the most amazing thing is with all this helping, they finished just two minutes away from the time bar. They finished at three hours and 58 minutes. They were two minutes away from getting completely disqualified. And they managed to get through. It was one of the closest finishes, I think, in racing history. And if you are an Enduro fan, that race will probably always stay in your mind for that reason. You could say it was a bit too much. Even for the biggest riders in the world, even if for your Graham Jarvis's, Johnny Walker's, Alfredo Gomez, and I'm missing a lot of other people here, it was just too much at that point. None of them could actually finish it. The race was too extreme. Extreme Enduro went too far. And to make it even, to put it into perspective, these winners and these riders had to actually cut the last bits of the track off because after downtime, there were still some sections to be done. Not as difficult, definitely not, definitely passable. But they were so close to getting time barred that they all decided commonly to just cut the track and fit inside that time bar. They were stuck for between one and two hours. So you can imagine having a hill in a forest, being in a contest, you have to get 20 meters up a hill. Okay, maybe it's a bit more. Let's say 30, 50 meters up a hill. And then you spend 10 to 20 hours. And these guys are professionals. They were exhausted. But what, what was left from that sport was look at the people that do these extreme sports and especially extreme enduro that's what i'm talking about sure they're they're the number ones two and threes of the world of course they're sponsored they do they ride for factory teams but at the end of the day they're still riders they're still passionate about the sport and just by realizing that four of them helped themselves and then they all finished together is amazing. And they were declared being were declared joint winners. You can imagine the first guy that got out being pulled by Adron could have easily just went on the bike, throttled on, and get to the finish line. But he didn't. He stayed on, helped the other three, or actually the other four guys. And by doing so, the bunch of five guys managed to finish the race. I honestly personally don't know of any other race that had five finishers. I don't, but it was amazing. And I watched it live. I remember watching it live back then and it was something else, definitely something else. And with this, we got to the end of this week's Crankcast. It's been almost half an hour, if not actually half an hour. Thanks a lot for tuning into this. Now, if you enjoyed this podcast, make sure to leave us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever you're listening to this podcast. If you're watching this on YouTube, then, well, you can also listen to us on our favorite, in, to your favorite um, podcasting platforms like Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and whatever you prefer. If you're watching this on YouTube as well, please leave a comment down below. Let me know about your opinion. Uh, did you watch that race? And if you want me to talk about this, anything in particular, let me know and we can tackle it in one of the future episodes. Now, that being said, also check out our main channel, YouTube channel called Crank It, and you can also follow us on Instagram at crank.it, so K-R-A-N-K dot I-T. And uh, yeah, let's think all the plugs. I've been Tudor, your host for this week's podcast, and see you again in next week's podcast. Have a good one.